Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And my, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. Now one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter, the gospel of the Lord. Brothers. They don't fare so well in scripture if you start thinking about the list of stories that include brothers. Uh, Joseph, at the point that this happened, had ten brothers, and they were extremely jealous of Joseph, and they decided, let's just kill him. But then the oldest brother, Reuben, came up with the morally superior idea of, let's pretend we killed him and sell him into slavery instead. Woo! Thanks. Keep working with it, people. Uh, then there's Jacob and Esau. They are competing with each other as they are born. They're, born. they're twins. The moment they're born, they're competing with each other. Jacob steals the birthright or, in a sense, family inheritance from Esau. And they probably would have come to death blows as adults if it had not been for God's intervention in Jacob's dream one night where they wrestle together. Jacob wrestles with his conscience and something is changed at last within him. And those stories all pale in comparison to the very first story about brothers in Scripture. Genesis chapters 1 through 11, we talk often about how those aren't uh, historical stories, they're theological stories, mythological stories, meant to establish certain truths about the, the God and the world in which we live. And so when you think about it, chapter 1 is this beautiful poem uh, where the refrain for each day and is, and, and it was God saw that it was good. And at the end, the refrain changes just a little bit, and it's very good. And then day two, you have Adam, humanity, uh, who doesn't do so well by himself. He needs a partner, Eve, and those names are symbolic of those things. And, and that's all awesome, but humans are made in what? The image of God, which in part apparently means we get to make choices. And if we make bad choices, bad things happen. So the third chapter is about the fall into sin. But at that point, it's just disobedience and lying, just. But then scripture, in its resolute honesty about the human condition, goes straight from just lying and disobedience to outright murder. That's chapter 4, where Cain is jealous of his brother Abel and kills him. And God comes walking along in the divine 
uh, imagine, or the imagination of the author of that story and, and asks Cain, where is your brother Abel? He uses Abel's name. Cain doesn't use his brother's name and says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And then, and then that results in, in one of the most uh, empathic, saddest lines in scripture because then the question back from God is, what have you done? And that's not a factual question. God knows what's happened. But instead, it is, this, it is this transparent and spontaneous and profound expression of disappointment and dismay that this is what the image of God has come to. What have you done? What have you done? So let's stop talking about brothers for just a moment, take a little segue into sisters. Uh, just because I, I think we can always get better at how we apply these stories, and sometimes in our earnestness almost to apply them well, we almost over-apply them. So think of sister stories in Scripture. If you're Jewish, you're probably going to say the most uh, best-known sisters are Rachel and Leah, I would think. Uh, as Christians, when you think of the Gospels, uh, who are the best-known sisters in the New Testament? That would be... Mary and Martha, and probably the best-known story of Mary and Martha, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, uh, where uh, all these people descend upon their house, uh, led by Jesus, and Martha is busy in the kitchen preparing for them and getting no help from her sister Mary, and she complains about that to Jesus. And Jesus kind of chides her a little bit and says, well, Mary's chosen the better thing. Um, uh, Women's groups have spent a lot of time working on that scripture passage, and I think uh, women often see themselves as Mary or Martha or a little bit of both. Uh, but to some extent, uh, those who have seen themselves as Martha over the years, I think have been a little dismayed. Like, she's doing all this work and nobody's helping her out. Doesn't she have a right to be a little indignant about that? Why does Jesus kind of uh, push her back on that? And on the other hand, for the women over the years who have thought of themselves as Marys, uh, they're kind of sitting there thinking, well, the men aren't doing anything. Why do I have to do something? Why can't I sit here and listen to Jesus as well? And there's a bit of, of, of liberation and freedom and defiance in that. And, and literally, I've been in a lot of women's study groups that have done a lot of work on that. It's, it's interesting, though, when you think about it, Mary and Martha are just having a little tiff. Like, nobody's getting killed. Nobody's getting sold into slavery. Nobody's, like, uh, stealing the birthright from the brother. In other words, I've never been in a men's group where the men sit there and say, well, am I Cain or Abel? Am I... Joseph or his brothers. I mean, what is it with us as men that we never ask those questions? In other words, perhaps we as men should spend a little more time thinking about, you know, that Joseph story and that Cain and Abel story, they are about jealousy and then kind of the rage that that creates in us. Maybe we as men should talk a little bit more about that. And maybe women don't need to talk as much about Mary and Martha. I mean, you know, it's, it's a relevant story, but it isn't definitional for any one person. Uh, I think for all of us, all of the stories are there as signposts from the past that can guide us into the future, but none of them tell any one of us exactly who we are. Brothers and sisters, back from the segue now. Uh, in our most essential relationships, you know what's true is uh, they are the places where we can be vulnerable. They are the places where uh, our creativity can come forth. Uh, they are the places where we can be supported and loved and fulfilled. 
And they are also the places where when things go wrong, where we can be suspicious and jealous and emotionally or otherwise uh, abusive to each other and so very destructive. There's a tradition in the Old Testament, at least the Hebrew scriptures, that if you see the face of God, you die. And, and perhaps it's because that, that question that, that God asks so transparently in, in Genesis chapter 4 is the question that we all are trying to avoid in life, which is none of us wants to get into the position where we have done something so wrong, so disappointing, so far from the image of God that we spin and see the face of God and God says back to us, what have you done? Because every culture understands that shame is the, is the ultimate thing. Your face just burns when you realize that, that your mistake has so profoundly disappointed someone that is so important to you. What have you done? And again, we should not spend too much time fixating on it, but we shouldn't spend too little time being honest with one of the most important questions. Maybe the most personal of questions. What have you done? New thought. So I got a mailing this week, and it could have come from any advertiser. This one came from what I previously would have called a brokerage firm. Of course, it was a wealth management firm. Uh, but it could just as easily have come from a car dealership or before Valentine's Day. It could have come from a jewelry place or come, could have come from a place uh, selling at-home exercise equipment where when you watch the commercials on TV, uh, you are working out super hard, but they're not sweating much and their hair is perfect and they're wearing this really cool gear. It's just that's how workouts are, right? So in other words, you know, advertising is advertising. And this is what we as human beings do, and it's cool, and it's, it's not a problem. But, but what I noticed about it was, you know, as is the case with a lot of advertising nowadays, it has to go to, like, a higher level. And so there were these bullet points in, in the cover letter of this mailing that were saying, like, um, uh, what are your goals in life? Who are the people who are most important to you in life? What is the legacy you want to leave in life? Now, those are good questions, but uh, the advertisers would say your investment firm will be the answer to those things. The beer you drink will be the answer to those things. The car you drive will be the answer to those things. The bike you're riding on home will be the answer to those things. We are, I think, skeptical and educated enough to realize that there are material issues in life and there are material answers to them, but there are also spiritual questions in life about eternal things and those things are not answered by temporal, material things. They have a different type of answer to them. And so to those more spiritual questions, like what really are your goals in life? Who are the people that are important to you? What legacy do you want to leave? Those are important spiritual questions. How do you answer them? This gets us to today's gospel lesson. So there's a lot going on in today's gospel lesson. Uh, more than we can talk about, the, but the basic flow of the story is that back in that time, religious teachers had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples. He's standing there one day, and Jesus walks by, and he points two of his disciples to Jesus and says, he's the one, he's the Lamb of God, the one who takes away the sin of the world, the one who perhaps has an answer to that question. And the two disciples take that as an invitation to follow Jesus, and they do, and so they start following him. And he turns around and he looks at them. 
the face of God, right? If you see the face of God, you die, right? But Jesus is on a different path, right? In other words, he actually isn't going to ask them that question, nor at some level is he going to ask you that question. That's a story about your past. Jesus meets you as who you are now and who you and he pray to be in the future. And so he looks them in the eye and he asks them, of course, a profoundly different question, which is, what are you looking for? And that, when you think about it, is, is maybe the most hopeful question there can be. Because at some level it recognizes that you yourself realize that you are not a complete deal. You yourself perhaps hope that not only can you be better, but that you can, you can be part of the, the puzzle pieces that allow the people in the world around you to be better. It's intrinsically hopeful because it means you have not given up. You still have energy to be looking for something. And so he turns to those two and he says, what are you looking for? And he would turn to you right now and he would ask you the same thing. Why did you come here this morning? What is it that you're looking for? Because you know you're not complete, but you haven't given up, and you recognize that you, in fact, are the solution to something in the world out there, and you want to know what it is. What are you looking for, people? And the disciples, they kind of blow it. Like they, have, they have no awesome answer to that. All they can come up with is, well, like, where are you stand, Jesus? What's the point of that? But he does not laugh at that or put that question down, and instead he issues to them Uh, the ultimate invitation of welcome, which is come and see. Just come and see. Come and ask your questions. Come and eat dinner with me. Come and stay the evening so that we can actually get to know each other beyond the surface. Come and see. Please. Please. And the coolest thing about the story in verse 41 is that we encounter this guy named Andrew who we hardly meet anyplace else in Scripture. But having seen the face of God and lived, having not been made ashamed by being asked the question that we're all afraid of, what have you done? But instead, having been asked a question of ultimate hope and life, what is it that you're looking for? Rather than keep that to himself or only go to the house of Jesus so he could absorb it, his first response is, I've got to, I've got to, I've got to go and tell my brother. After all of those stories about brothers screwing it up in Scripture, Here's a brother whose first instinct is to welcome and include and make sure that his brother has a chance to have the same good news that he has just heard. And so he goes and finds Simon, and he hauls Simon to Jesus. And the moment those two see each other, Peter, I have, I suspect at some level, already recognized everything that Jesus would be to him. And Jesus immediately gives him that wonderful nickname, you're the rock, you're the one on whom I will build the church. That's what the name Peter means. The good brother, Andrew, who instantly thought beyond himself to invite someone important to him. What are your goals in life? Who are the people who are most important to you? What legacy are you going to to leave? What was important to him was to share. The person he invited was Peter. The legacy he leaves is that Peter is the one who, who, who leads the earliest group of believers. That's an amazing legacy. It comes because Andrew thought to invite him. Jesus keeps it so wonderfully simple. He is the answer to both of the questions. Behold the Lamb of God. 
for all of our collective shame and disappointment and failure. He is the redemption and reconciliation that the world longs for. But more than that question, he is the one who poses this one to you and I. What are you looking for? And this year in Matthew's Gospel, if we take the time to listen to it, he'll answer it with the simplest of things. If you've got a light, don't hide it under a bushel. If you've got some seed, make sure it's good seed and sow it in good ground. If you're willing to be a laborer in the vineyard, show up at 5 a.m. in the morning. And even if people start working at 5 in the evening, don't be resentful of that. Be welcoming of every person who comes to help in the harvest. These are the simple things that any of us are capable of being. But you need role models. You need heroes. For the week to come, perhaps it would not hurt to ask yourself the question, what have I done? But spend way more time asking yourself the question, what am I looking for? And you don't have to answer it right away. Maybe just give thanks for the good brother, Andrew Dunn.